Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. Ursula K. Le Guin died on January 22, 2018, at the age of 88. Acclaimed for her novels, short stories, essays, and poetry, she is best known for her fantasy and science fiction, in particular her novels The Left Hand of Darkness and The Dispossessed, and her series of novels in the fantasy realm of Earthsea. In her works, she explored gender, political struggles, economics, as well as anthropology and sociology. On September 29, 2000, my former co-host Richard A. Lupoff and I spoke with Ursula K. Le Guin about her career as a writer and about her latest novel, a political and social science fiction allegory, The Telling. This program is taken from that interview with segments interpolated from a short 1983 interview conducted by Richard A. Lupoff. The official interview ends at around the 36-minute mark, and the final 15 minutes consist of a free-form discussion about Ursula K. Le Guin's history in the science fiction field and her thoughts on several writers. Ursula K. Le Guin, you came from a very special family, and I'd like just to start by asking you about your mother and father and how they influenced your writing. That's a very difficult question, you know. My brother taught me how to read and write, because apparently he was kind of ashamed that he had this illiterate little sister. I don't remember when I started writing, so this was just something that was sort of apparently innate. And the parents encouraged it mildly. You know, they didn't say, ooh, look, Ursula's written a poem, isn't it wonderful? There wasn't anything like that. They just sort of took it for granted that reading and writing were one of the things you did. What about the fact that they were they were such well-known figures in the Berkeley anthropological scene? In the Berkeley... Well, my dad was very well-known as an anthropologist, but that doesn't mean a whole lot to a 10-year-old. He went off to meetings and uh, worked very hard, and I watched him reading and writing, and he had lots of interesting friends who came around to the house including a couple of dear Indian friends, which was a privilege not too many white people have. But my mother was just a housewife at that point. She didn't start writing until she was in her 50s. And then her second book was a bestseller, which is such a nice fairy tale. You began writing, and did you have trouble selling at first? Yes. I had a lot of trouble selling. I could sell, sell, in quotes. I could place poetry. If you just hang in there and keep sending your poems out to poetry magazines, you can get published because poetry magazines always need poetry. But the commercial aspect of things where you actually sell a story, I guess I was sending out stories and novels for seven or eight years before I placed anything in fiction. Had you been reading science fiction? Some. I read a little as a kid when I was 12 or 13. And then I kind of missed the whole Heinlein glory days. I had a friend who put me on to Cordwainer Smith along in the late 50s, I suppose, and Ted Sturgeon. And I was sort of saying, hey, this is, this is different from what it used to be. This, this is a lot more fun. And Cordwainer Smith particularly sort of, wow, look what this guy can do. He was such a totally different voice. And coming from a, a, a different sort of, really intellectual standpoint. Now now we know who he was. Where were you reading these authors? Were these, this is sort of the last days of the pulps? Or yeah, they, these were yeah. magazines. Uh, my friend Mac was subscribing to the magazines, and then he'd pass them on to me. Remember which ones? Well, it, what would it be? It would be amazing and fantastic, but I don't know whether Cormier Smith appeared in those. Yeah. Probably Galaxy and FNSF was, was what we were passing around in those days. Were these early stories that you wrote, were they science fiction or fantasy, or were they mainstream? Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> you wrote them all. Yeah. I wrote quite a lot of mainstream or, or realistic fiction then, but often there was something slightly quirky about it. 
at 12, I think I was totally unaware of that magazines really had editors. I just sent it to Astounding. It came back, but that didn't decrease my childish arrogance at all. I had a real rejection slip from a real magazine. I finally broke into publishing fiction with two stories. and One went to a literary magazine. And it has a German title, Andy Musik. And it's a perfectly realistic story, but it's set in an imaginary Central European country. So there was often a little oddness about my stories, which I think frightened the uh, the market. And this, the same week, I had a story accepted to uh, Amazing Stories. Was, was that and, uh, Seal Goldsmith, the editor yeah. at that time? Yeah. yeah. Did you know her personally? No, we never met. Yeah. But she was a good editor, and she did edit. Sometimes it was a bit disastrous. In that, in the first story that she accepted for Amazing, it's uh, called April in Paris. It's fantasy. And she added a lot of words to the last sentence. I had something about the, the, the river. It takes place in Paris. You know, the Seine is flowing by. And when I read the story in print, it said the Seine was flowing by in all its rippling grandeur. <laughs> and I, I went through the roof. And this was my first publication, but all the same, I did write her. And I said, where did that rippling grandeur come from? And she said, she said, there was a widow and I had to fill out the line. <laughs> and I said, well, next time, don't do it with the last sentence of my story. And she said, OK. <laughs> she really was very nice. I'd like to ask you a question about the relationship between genre fiction and general literary fiction or, or so-called mainstream fiction. Uh, we, recent guest here, Joyce Carol Oates, for instance, draws a rather – strong distinction between the two. Margaret Atwood says there's no difference. Some things are just written better than others. How does Ursula <laughs> Le Guin feel? I'm, I'm definitely on Maggie's side of things. I think realism, which some people want to call literature or mainstream realism, is one of the genres. And it's a fairly recent one. It's older than science fiction, but it's younger than fantasy. There wasn't any realistic fiction until the 18th century. And why we have privileged it as being the only literary narrative, I don't understand. And I do think that that distinction is breaking down pretty fast now. I recall some years ago there was a dispute uh, within the MLA, the Modern Language Association, <laughs> as to is this woman Le Guin a science fiction writer <laughs> or is she a real writer? Mm -hmm. And did, they really talk that way. Well, what did they say to you and what did you say to them? We talk behind each other's backs mostly. If they want to badmouth me, they do it behind my back. And if I want to fight back, I, you know, I just publish something. I haven't actually been to an MLA meeting in my persona as a writer. I went long, long ago when I was a student of Romance Languages, but uh, that was another life. When you began writing, you just wrote what came your way? Did you actually look toward writing, say, science fiction? How did that begin for you? Just submitting to a science fiction fantasy magazine, which is what Amazing was, and they took it, and they paid me real, real $30. <laughs> it sounds silly now, but in today's terms, that's 300 or so. Living as we were then, it was a substantial amount of money. And I thought, well, maybe these guys, this, the sort of odd things I do with fiction, maybe these science fiction fantasy people will accept it, and indeed they did. And then I did get serious about reading more, particularly science fiction, so that, you know, you, you can't write in any field without knowing what's going on in that field. And science fiction is particularly that way. You sort of have to know what's been done and what people are doing so that you don't reinvent the wheel all the time. But did you get that feeling, the distinction that Dick was talking about between, say, mainstream and science oh, fiction? Oh, yeah. Back then, it was science fiction was absolutely a ghetto. But after seven or eight years of sending out stories and novels and not getting any publications, you get fairly desperate. I didn't care who published me. And the fact that I might be stigmatizing myself and getting a big red SF branded on my forehead, you know, among the intelligentsia, I could have cared less. I just wanted to get my stories out there and get somebody reading them. You know, that's what a writer wants. You know, since then I realized that uh, perhaps career-wise, this was a risky move. But, you know, I really don't care. I would have gone ahead writing what I write anyway. You did get started in the 60s. 
The first novels were to Don Walheim at Ace Books. Remember, there was no SFWA then. There was not very good information for a young writer in science fiction. At least I didn't know how to get it if there was good information going. I've always tended to work rather alone and not ask questions. So I just sent it to the publisher who published most of the books I was reading, and that was Wolheim at Ace. Ace was essentially science fiction to me. And he was, you know, he was doing fairly experimental things, and right along in there he started the Ace Specials, got Terry Carr to buy those for him. So I was coming in right at the perfect moment to sell to Don Wolheim. And, of course, the first two books were those ace doubles. They're now collector's yeah. items. I was on with Tom Dish on one and um, Avram Davidson on the other. What better company could a young writer ask for? These early days in your career, I wonder what your dealings were like with these editors. Was it just, you know, send off the manuscript <laughs> and get back a check, or was there more going on than that? I had no agent. Typical naive young writer. I signed <laughs> the total giveaway contract. Well, everybody has to start somewhere. I hold no rancor against the, 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 the ace contracts of those days. At least they got us all started. The breakthrough novels, at least to my way of thinking, there were three in number, and they were Left Hand of Darkness, Lathe of Heaven, and The Dispossessed. Outside of the science fiction field, what kind of response was there to these books? I mean, I found The, the Dispossessed to be one of the greatest dystopia novels I ever read. Okay, well, now we're sticking strictly to my science fiction because along in there, after all, came A Wizard of Earthsea. That's true, Also, yeah. The reception of Left Hand of Darkness, of course, just to took me totally by surprise. I, I thought people would hate this book where, where I disgendered people, as it were, and instead the readers really liked it and continued to like it. And, it's, and it caused a satisfying amount of controversy and argument and so on. Then Lathe of Heaven isn't a controversial book. Uh, and it, it just, I don't know, it just sort of got me more solidly ensconced as a science fiction writer, I guess. And then Dispossessed, which is a utopia dystopia thing. It got read very seriously in Europe. It got translated quickly and taken pretty seriously in France and Germany and places like that. And academics do tend eventually to notice that. So I would say academically that book's probably been discussed more than the others by serious academic critics. But reviewers, newspaper reviewers and that non-academic critics, none of these books was ever reviewed, I think. I believe the first review I ever had in the New York Times, it wasn't in a little corral or ghetto with the other SF, you know, or sci-fi, was Always Coming Home. I think that one had a front page review by Chip Delaney. Who was also a science fiction person. Who's a science fiction? Of course they... But that's right. They, in a sense, particularly then, you had to get a science fiction person to review science fiction because the ordinary critics and, and the academics didn't know how to read it. They hadn't mm -hmm. trained themselves. They were very, it's, it's like the Harry Potter thing. All these people saying, ooh, wow, how original. The story, you know, nobody's ever done anything like this before. These are people who apparently haven't ever read any fantasy. They have managed not to notice the existence of Tolkien. Can you talk about how you came to write The Lathe of Heaven and The Dispossessed? Well, Lathe of Heaven, I've been reading, you know, just absolutely for pleasure, for the, the pleasure of learning about all that sleep and dream research that was being, that field was just opening up back then. What was that, uh, mid-60s? I think that's when they were all dement and those people were, were all just opening up this lovely whole new field of psychological, physiological research. And I was reading everything that came out and most of them could write well. So it was a pleasure to read their papers, you know. And so, on. so I had just sort of uh, floundered around in that for two, three years. And the book just sort of started itself. And I, all the research, at, in quotes, had been done. I, I sort of knew the field pretty well. So I could just sit down and write the book. And it was a book that wrote itself. I, did, I, I plotted it very little. How could I? I mean, George had to have another dream all the time. And I, I did not investigate too far where I was going. And I laughed like crazy writing it. It was a lot of fun to write. It just poured out. Dispossessed is just the opposite. Dispossessed was, grew from an aborted short story that was lousy. Lousy, rotten short story, but I knew there was a good idea in it. I knew I had to know more about, I needed some kind of political structure. 
I started reading Utopias, read Paul Goodman, read Communitas by Paul and Percival Goodman, got sent into anarchism, spent a couple of years reading there, and then was ready to start very carefully planning and plotting out the book, you see. So that was a constructed book. Laith was a poured-out book. I don't think they read all that differently, though, is the funny thing. Laith might be a little wordy. If, if, I, if I rewrote that book now, I would cut a little more sternly than I did. My trilogy was totally accidental. I had no intention of writing a trilogy. It was not a fad at the time. There were a couple of fantasy trilogies around, but it wasn't a, you know, it wasn't sort of de rigueur the way it is now. Is that a trilogy or it's a trilogy? Well, this. Oh, this is really embarrassing, David. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. I've it's, been working. It's a, it was a four-book trilogy until I wrote two more books, which are going to come out. So now, now what do we call a sexology? <laughs> so let's, let's, just, let's just drop that word trilogy here. Okay. okay. Uh, there was what I thought a, a very remarkable motion picture based on The Lathe of Heaven. Uh, how did that come about and whatever became it? It seems to have just slipped uh, slipped out of consciousness. It came about because of David Loxton at WNET, Channel 13 in, in, uh, in New York. He had a dream of uh, narrative television that, and he unfortunately died very soon after he made Lathe of Heaven and took his dreams with him. It was the most successful, dramatic film that, that uh, public television ever showed, apparently. And people remembered it. And for 20 years, I kept getting letters saying, how can I get a copy of The Lathe of Heaven? Or why don't, the, you know, why don't they put it out on video? And I would say, please, would you send a copy of your letter to WNET-TV in New York, give me an address. And it took 20 years, but finally somebody got in there who was interested and stopped just kind of dodging and saying, well, we can't possibly pay residuals and we can't find the film and things like that. You know? And so they cleaned up the old film just a tiny bit, you know, and put it on for their pledge drive this summer. So most of the stations in the United States ran it this summer at some point, and now you can buy it either as a video or as a DVD. And I don't have to answer letters anymore. How wonderful. About Just it. Tell yeah. them to send a check. That's right. Uh, well, to, tell us about the production of that. Who did the screenplay? Who was in the cast? Who directed it? Was it Logson directed it? Yeah, Logson yeah. and Fred Barzik from the Boston station. They asked me to write the screenplay, and I'd never written a screenplay or even thought about it. And I said, I, I can't. You know, I can't just plunge in and learn how to write a screenplay cold with my own book. They hired Roger Swabel, who did a very good job in some ways and a terrible job in other ways. And so we did an awful lot of rewrites. And I was in on the rewrites. I was in on casting. I was in on as much of that movie as I was able to be in on. I was included in a way writers are very, very seldom. In fact, I don't know any other writer that was in on their movie the way I was included with a real voice, really being listened to, and having a lot of fun. It was a great crew, we had a great photographer, good music. And we had to do the whole thing on three quarters of a million dollars. And even then, you, that, you was, that was peanuts. You can't make a commercial for That's three quarters right. of a million dollars. Well, if you look at the special effects in the Lathe of Heaven, they ain't exactly state of the art. Some of them are lighted Frisbees, for instance, the, the spaceships. Uh, there, there are various stories. This was Ed Emschwiller was, did some of the special effects, and he was very creative and inventive. And our, our space alien, who was supposed to be a beautiful sort of sea turtle person, he looks kind of like the Michelin man <laughs> or, or, or the doughboy. Uh, he only has one working arm, and pretty soon you become aware that only one arm lifts, you know. But uh, he had a nice voice. Despite all of the, all of the limitations on it, it came out. It was, it was a good movie. It was I think a, so, too. I agree. Movie. It was uh, entertaining. It was interesting. I think it, it is kind of an, a lesson that, that, you know, special effects are a lot of fun. But it's kind of you, you've seen them once, you've seen them, whereas your story and your acting, because we have awfully good actors, is kind of where it's at. 
Well, how about some more then? There's, you, you've got a large well, it's body fine of with work me. Now. It's fine with me. Somebody option one. Make a movie, please, of Left Hand of Darkness. I'd okay. love to see that okay. movie. I'll, I'll reach for my checkbook <laughs> as soon as I get one. Yeah. Richard Walensky. Outside of Lathe of Heaven, your science fiction novels all seem to fall into a specific universe, uh, the universe of the Hainish and something called the Ansible, which is a a radio communication device that cuts across light years. It's instantaneous communication. Yeah. Dick told me that that Ansible, the idea, preceded Ursula K. Le Guin. Well, the idea of yeah. instantaneous communication undoubtedly preceded me by a long, <laughs> long time. But it was just a convenience since I have an Einsteinian universe where you can't travel faster than light. Uh, or you can't do it very successfully. Actually, I have a couple of stories in which confusions happen when people try it. But uh, that means that everybody's hundreds of light years away from each other. How can you have a novelistic universe where people interact if they can't even talk? So my friend Shevik, the physicist from Anaris, invented the Ansible for me. I think I used it in my first or second novel. What prompted you to keep using that same universe? Was it that Laziness. Laziness? Laziness, yeah. <laughs> Why reinvent the universe if you've gone all that trouble to do it once? The trouble is I keep forgetting bits of it. How far in the future do these books take place? Quite a long time ahead. I'm awfully careless about that. I'm always losing millennia too. You know, I have figured it out. Because it takes so long to get to places when you only have nearly light speed, we get pretty far into the future. We're getting up in, I suppose, a couple of millennia. I get the sense uh, that your latest book, The Telling, takes place at around the same time as The Dispossessed or perhaps a little bit later. It's later because the Ansible is well established. You see, this is the kind of thing where I'm very sloppy about this universe. But on the other hand, it seems not very far in the future in Earth terms. The Earth part of it seems within the next couple of hundred years at most because we have the same country names and languages and so on. The the Earth part of the telling, uh, we see a future which is enough like our present world to be recognizable, but it's sufficiently different to be pretty frightening. Uh, as for the changes in the world, which are largely the result of human tinkering, you don't really get very much picture of Earth in the telling. You, you, you see that the sea has risen. That seems a fairly safe bet at this point because, you know, old Vancouver is underwater. That's about all you get, isn't it? There's a lot more mostly in the mind of our hero. Well, there's the political Sorry. stuff, the political yeah. religious stuff. We Apparently, the, the world has been pretty much taken over by a, a fundamentalist theocracy about which we learn really very little. Well, let's talk about this fundamentalist theocracy. It reminded me a little bit of Margaret Atwood's uh, The Handmaid's Tale. Octavia Butler has addressed some of the same issues. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm starting, plus also simply picking up my morning newspaper, um, this seems, seems to be a remarkably powerful and, to me, both puzzling and distressing trend in the way our society is working. Fundamentalism. Yes, me too. I think that's why it's coming out in fiction, is, is that this is something that is worrying a lot of people. And religions that never were fundamentalist, such as Hinduism, suddenly they're getting aggressive, whereas I think of Hinduism historically as incredibly accepting, as sort of an embracing religion. Uh, and now it's no, nope. No, no. So we're right, you're wrong, you know, that sort of thing. This is very frightening to me. We are, are all living in an age or have lived in an age where it looked for a while as if rationality and tolerance were becoming acceptable and even dominant as to the way people thought and related to one another. And that all you mean those, those five minutes in 1965? Oh, I, I remember them. Yes, I think they happened in May. <laughs> yeah. We've gone into reverse gear on that, and we're moving faster and faster away from it. I, I would just like to know if you have any idea, any theory even, 
as to what's going on and why is it going on? I guess I don't really know that it's any worse than it's always been, except there are more of us. Everything we do is more disastrous because we are already severely overpopulated. Every problem becomes insoluble when there's too many of you and when, you know, there's 20 more of you born every second. But, you know, I was a kid in the 30s, and I suppose it seems ancient and quaint to a lot of people now, but, but the 30s were not a nice decade. There was really bad stuff happening. We were mostly aware at that point, it wasn't as much one world then, it was Europe. We were fixated on Europe, but after all, there was Japan. There was really bad stuff happening all over the world, and it was very frightening, and a lot of people really thought that the, the age of reason was gone and the chaos was what we faced forever. It really felt that way in 1939 to a lot of people. So I guess in a sense, we have to realize that we've sort of been there and done that and we'll be there again. Uh, in the telling, you portray more than one future. I don't mean in the sense of parallel worlds, but different places. And the one future in which religion is dominant and we get the feeling that religion hates and fears science, this is a concept and a kind of imagery that we have encountered before. But what about the concept in the imagery where science hates and fears religion? That's much more unusual. They do seem to often get on opposite sides of a fence and start shouting at each other. It, it does seem also rather unnecessary. I think to many scientists and many religious people, the whole confrontational territorial thing seems an awful waste of time, that there is no essential conflict between the scientific method and the spiritual outlook. But the, the fundamentalists get dug in and not so much scientists, but the whole, the myth of progress is really what's the villain in the other world in, in the telling on, on Akka, is that they have bought into the myth of progress. They've replaced their religion with another religion, which is the religion of constant growth, capitalistic growth, and technological progress, that this is going to supply the meaning of life. And of course, we're doing that right now, in a sense. The saddest part in the telling is that this other culture, this other religion, didn't have the power any power to even begin to fight back against the onslaught of, uh, I think it's the people of Dovzan, and their, uh, and their push to establish a world religion of science. They're not really scientific. Okay, I, a, I keep pointing out that their science really isn't that good, they, that they've bought in, yeah, progress, capitalism, high tech, losing all the low tech skills, the, the, like, you know, like making things really well and so on, and going in for kind of shoddy high tech. Isn't this a bit of a fairly obvious satire on the way the West moves in to what we call less advanced countries and takes over and, and where they were eating something good, you get McDonald's, you know, and so on. And then, of course, as for a religion giving in, that's a sticky thing. See, the, the, the idea for the book came from Mao's suppression of, of the practice of Taoism in China, and he did seem to suppress it with appalling rapidity and ease. And I don't know that they've given in, but they've certainly had to go underground. You know, if you if you got enough soldiers on your side, you can suppress anything. But religion does seem to come come back, and in fact, if we look at contemporary China, it's remarkable. Some of the th you, again, you just pick up your morning newspaper and you say. This, what year is this? What am I reading? Well, and, and, and yeah, we've got some sort of new cult which the government is wildly anxious about and is, it is stamping out right and left. But then comes another new cult. On the other hand, these are cults. They, they tend to have a leader and so on. They're different from what was a great 3,000-year-old popular religion, which was you know kind of deeply ingrained in the culture. Something there may have been permanently lost. We don't really know. How much do we really know about what's going on in China? I sure don't know much. How powerful? Why is this idea of progress, say, or technology so powerful that it, it will completely wipe out everything in its path? And I'm thinking not merely just 
you know, you could walk in and with an army and 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 destroy and a culture. Yeah. You can do that, but you could also do it in so many other ways. Yeah, we just do it. The the, the White West has essentially just done it by arriving, with always a slight edge technologically. I mean, even in Peru, the Spanish weren't really, in many ways, they were not as advanced as the Incas, but they had horses, they had armor, and they had guns that made a big, loud noise. And there goes the Inca Empire. I mean, when, when you put it in those stark terms, or like the conquest of Mexico, you sort of say, what? You know, 65 Spaniards topple an empire? But they did. I think it's a big question that nobody's ever answered. Uh, yeah, it, it strikes me indoor plumbing, say, is a very powerful tool, but, but is it necessarily the weapon to destroy cultures? <laughs> Sometimes it may be, exactly. In your books, I'd like to delve into what exactly Ursula Le Guin is doing by creating parallel worlds that mirror our own. Basically, to put it bluntly, I think in fiction. I, I can't think abstractly. If I have a, a big problem that worries me, like the one we were just talking about, you know, it starts taking the form of a story. And I imagine to simplify the issues, of course, that's where science fiction is so beautiful, is you, you can make up a world where you don't have to cope with all the other things that are going on. You can kind of concentrate and simplify your world fictionally, which all fiction does. All fiction leaves out about 99% of the world. But you can do that selectively in science fiction in a particular way, which is a lot of fun both for writer and reader. What about the way character interacts, the characters that you create interact? They're the heart of the book. I mean, I couldn't start the telling, although I knew what I wanted to write about. I couldn't tell the story until I got the viewpoint character. And until she sort of came and began talking to me, as it were, I didn't have the book. After a lot of full starts and a lot of attempts at a different viewpoint character, it's like Seti sort of moseys in and says, hello, I'm here. Now I'm going to tell you this story. Then I begin taking dictation in a sense. I'm not totally out of control. <laughs> oh, this sounds that way. There's a character called the Monitor who represents the, the he, government in yeah, a sense. He's, he's the bad bureaucrat. He's, yeah. <laughs> uh, how did he develop? Uh, or did he just kind of happen? He kind of happened, and he took me by surprise because I couldn't figure out why he was still there when obviously he's a government apparatchik, and yet th this government is allowing her to stay on in this little town. And how come he's harassing her? And, of course, finally it occurred to me that he is actually acting against his government's orders. He has become a kind of fanatic on his own. And then I had to find out why. So Suddy had to tell him her story and he had to tell her his story. Then we know what motivates both of them. I don't want to give away the ending and I, and I won't, but let me ask you around that issue. Do you think his solution to his own problem is the only solution possible? No. What we have here is a very severely damaged man, uh, damaged early and then damaged again, who just doesn't see a way a way for him to go on being. And this does happen to, to people sometimes. And he's a very passionate person. And sometimes a passionate man just, you know, okay, he's up against the wall. Some people have, have referred to the, the feminization of science fiction. It used to be a, a, not even a man's game, but a boy's game. <laughs> and uh, so many of our leading science fiction writers of the past several decades have been women is this a revolutionary movement? Is this an evolutionary movement? Or is it just something that, that just happened? It's about my generation. About the time I started writing science fiction, a lot of other women started writing it and reading it. What is it now? I think it's probably about two-thirds men and one-third women, both readers and writers, which compares fairly well with, with the general average in fiction, I think. Do men read female authors? Do women read male authors? Yeah. Yeah, sure. If you like science fiction, you're going to read science fiction. There's some prejudices left, but... Uh... What about the dichotomy between the science fiction for the 15-year-old and the science fiction for the adult? 
I don't know. What what is science fiction with a fifteen year old? You mean the, the sort of adventure story? Oh with yeah, a lot yeah. Of... The difference between a Lois McMaster Bujold and an Ursula K. Le Guin, for example. How has the field changed? Have you noticed the change? Do you still see adults reading it as much as they did? Judging by Charles Brown's annual locus sort of analysis of the readership, the readership has aged considerably. I mean, kids are still reading it, and it's still a wonderful way. If you have non-reading kids, often you can draw them in uh, with fantasy and science fiction to, to, to get them hooked on reading. But I think the, re the reading age has gone up considerably. All I can say is I have no hesitation in writing up to the absolute top of my intellectual bent and having any fear that science fiction readers won't get it because they are a smart bunch. These are people who, who tend to have intellects to start with and who also are expert in this kind of reading. They're good readers. So it's, you know, they're a delight to write for. Ursula K. Le Guin, um, you, you go back and forth between writing your fantasies set in your Earthsea world and your science fiction. And the Oregon coast. And the Oregon coast. <laughs> Will we ever see any more Orsinian tales? I don't know what's going on in Orsinia. Since the last story is Unlocking the Air, which is the collapse of the communist regime there, Nobody has come out of Orsinia to tell me what's going on. I'm, I'm sort of worried. I don't think things are too good. But uh, I have no reports. I need a mole. <laughs> you have a book called Tahanu, The Last Book of Earthsea. Is it? <laughs> oh, no. It's the fourth book of the trilogy. And next, next summer, there's going to be a book of tales from Earthsea. And after that, there's going to be another novel called The Other Wind. The people keep coming back to me from Earth saying, and, and, and saying, look, look what's happening since you left. All this stuff has happened. We got these dragons, you know. <laughs> so I have to keep catching up with them. Can we ask you a couple of questions about Don Walheim? <laughs> when, when did your contact with Walheim first start? When I submitted uh, <clears throat> Ro Cannon's World to Ace Books. And he accepted it and said, it's going to be, I'm, I'm starting this line of doubles to, to turn the book over in the middle. And he paired me with Tom Dish, I think, <laughs> Mankind Under the Leash. So Tom Dish was on one side and then you, if you realized what was going on, you turned the book over and started from the other side. Well, Don Wolheim was a very canny editor. He really had a nose. He started a whole lot of us. He didn't pay us very much. And royalties were a concept that nobody really grasped very clearly at that point. <laughs> but, uh, but he put us in print and uh, distributed us. Did he do any editing? I don't think so. He certainly didn't edit me. Maybe, you know, maybe if he got writers who couldn't spell or something, maybe he uh, turned loose on him. But no, uh, and the, uh, the proofreading on those old these doubles is fairly inventive. Uh, you said before that Seal Goldsmith uh, influenced you because she edited, helped edit your work very well. Did you find any other editors who worked as editors who helped you? See, Celia, yeah, Celia was, she's, she ended up buying most of my short stuff. And when Terry Carr was, I think they gave him a line of his own at Ace? Yeah, yeah the Ace Specials. The Ace Specials, Those that's it. paintings on the covers. Yeah, yes, a beautiful the, the best cover that that, uh, that book ever had. I heard about this, cause, and I really don't know what the channels for hearing about things were at that point. There were fanzines, but I guess maybe SFWA had started, and maybe I heard about it there. Anyhow, I was writing Left Hand of Darkness, and so I thought, oh, well, I'll submit that to Terry Carr, and I thought, I did think he was a woman. I thought it was, a, you know, Terry's one of those names. So I, I wrote this letter to Miss Carr, you know, this. And he wrote back, and he took it as an ace. That was my first standalone, I guess. And then at that point, the agent Virginia Kidd had nominated one of my books for the Nebula. So SFWA did exist then. So I wrote her and said, you know, I've already sold this to a paperback house. Can you, would you like to try to sell it in hardcover? And she said, would I ever? And that was the beginning of my relationship with her. And I believe Virginia at some point renegotiated the contracts with Don Wolheim also and got a little more justice 
<laughs> parody into things. But all the same, he was the breakthrough for a lot of us. Your first hardback was then Lathe of Heaven, I think, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. No, no. The first hardback was Left-Handed Darkness. Well, that with came Walker afterward. Because Virginia sold it to Walker. Did that come out before the paperback? <laughs> they came out more or less simultaneously. It was a very unusual deal. This hardly ever happens. Yeah. And, you, and, oh, go ahead. you mentioned uh, your friend Mac, uh, mm -hmm. who, who used to give you the magazines. Mm -hmm. Who was Mac? Oh, he was just he, – he taught drama in, at Portland. He was just a friend. And you remember what those magazines were? Did, did you actually read any of the pulps? Oh, yeah. I mean, the real classic era pulps? Well, yeah. Well, back when I was 10 or 12, my brother and I had a phase of reading what was then astounding in the big format with Kuttner and people like that writing for it. Some mm -hmm. very good stuff was coming out then. Then astounding, when did it become analog? Oh, not until the 1950s. But that was, you see... I had Even stopped reading 50s. it before then. It was yeah. that was just sort of a phase when I was a kid, and then I really wasn't reading science fiction for a long time. I was going to college and, you know, learning to be a French scholar. So I got back in to reading it through through this friend. Basically, must have been fifty seven, fifty six, fifty seven, when we moved to Portland. Did you ever have any contact with uh, Tiptree? Yeah, we we wrote letters back and forth for several years while she was while she was James Tiptree, but then when she got flushed out and had to become Alice, uh, <laughs> she stopped. She stopped. I'm so sorry that happened. Why would it bother her? I don't know, but she she needed the cover. She needed to be James Tiptree to write freely to to other women, and I think to write her stories. When you first began, did you get any prejudice to the fact that you were a woman? There were still so few women writers around in the early 60s. There was a bunch of us kind of coming in together, though, like Vonda McIntyre, uh, you know, and so on. There, there were sort of some brash, yeah. brash women breaking in as a group almost. Well, Joanna Russ would tell you that, that the place was rife with prejudice, and she's probably right. I have to say that personally— Either I'm so dumb I didn't notice it or I was lucky because it seemed like, you know, once I started selling, I just kept selling and I was – and I, of course, I had a wonderful agent. So Virginia was an unusually good agent in science fiction. Was she the one who sent you to Playboy? Yeah. I use that term yeah. metaphorically. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Virginia always always sent things to the top of the market. She, she, she may have sent that story to the New Yorker before she sent it to Playboy. She had no fear of any market. She never ghettoized her authors. She would handle anything except poetry, which, you know, is, is a dead loss for an agent basically. So, yes. And I think I'm trying to remember why we submitted this story with initials only. I can't remember whether – Virginia thought of it or I thought of it. But, they, you know, Playboy was not not printing anything but yeah. men at that point. So you became U U.K. Le Guin. I, the story was submitted by U.K. Le Guin and they accepted it. And then I think Virginia said, nah, 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 nah. <laughs> <laughs> and they, they were really kind of scared. And they said, well, can we continue to use the initials? And, of course, we had to say yes because we'd submitted the story. With initials on. How about your picture on their little author bio page? Uh, they didn't do a picture, but they, they, the funny thing was they wanted a statement about myself from me. <laughs> and have, having, as they were obviously trying to hide the fact that I was a woman, yet they asked me for a personal statement. So I just said the stories written by UK Le Guin actually were written by another person of the same name. <laughs> was your editor there uh, A.C. Spektorsky? He was the – he was very famous. You know, as, I don't you remember know. who was editing then. I have a feeling there was a brand new editor had just come in. It might have been Roby McCauley then. It was Roby McCauley. And very soon after that, the policy changed and they were printing lots more yeah. women. I was either the first woman to have a story in Playboy or the second because I think maybe there was that, that little French woman who sucked her thumb – do you remember? Francois Sagan? Yeah. I think maybe Sagan had a story in Playboy. <laughs> but I did it without sucking my thumb. So. <laughs> I like the way you identify her. <laughs> well, I couldn't think of her well, name. <laughs> what's she going to say about those two bozos at KPFA? <laughs> how about, how about um, the writing of fantasy? Um, how did, did that just sell because you were already a science fiction writer? 
Or, or no, just... that was uh, – I, I wrote A Wizard of Earthsea because I was asked to by a publisher uh, right here in Berkeley, Herman Schein of Parnassus Press, which had been a kid's book publisher, picture books. And Herman wanted to expand. It was a distinguished small press with very successful books. And he published one of my mother's books for children, a beautiful, beautiful little publication, a Green Christmas it's called. And, uh, you know, she, my mother and Herman were friends. And he saw I was writing this science. And he said, would you write a science fiction story for young adults? Because I want to uh, start publishing young adult books. And I said, oh, I've never written for kids. I don't know how to do that. And then I went home and had this idea about a school for wizards, about how, how wizards learn to be wizards. I think I said to Herman, you know, the idea I have isn't science fiction. It's fantasy. And he didn't know the difference. He said, that's fine. I just want a young adult book, you know. So I went ahead and wrote A Wizard of Earthsea. Do you remember what year that was? When yeah, that it came happened? out in 68, didn't it? And at that point, uh, did they then say I want a, another book, which became the sequel? That was, you see, about the same time that I acquired an agent. That book was unagented, and it was a dreadful. It was an absolute giveaway contract. Herman didn't really, I don't think he knew what an awful contract he had. I gave away all the film rights, everything. When Virginia became my agent, uh, I said, I'm, I'm writing another. This, this Wizard of Earthsea seems to have a sequel. And she said, that's great, and it's not going to Herman Schein. She took it to Houghton Mifflin, uh, who, of course, at that point were publishing Tolkien and were kind of high on fantasy. So the next two books were Houghton Mifflin. No, sorry. I lied. They were at the Neum. Oh, that's right. Yeah, they were. And Houghton Mifflin yeah. bought Parnassus. That's what happened. So they acquired A Wizard of Earth Sea, but the, then the next three books are Athenaeum. And then the, 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 the fifth and sixth books are going to be Harcourt. So Earthsea's all over the map. The reaction to Earthsea, I mean, I, I know that, that I was, I guess, in my late teens and I was reading your science fiction at the time. And uh, I remember being stunned and, and, and really loving it. What was the reaction of the rest of the science fiction community? Were you wholeheartedly accepted into writing this, uh, this other kind of fantasy? It got, a real good, it got a real good reception. Yeah, it really did. It's just, just like people have always liked that book. And it really, truly has never been out of print in, in hardcover uh, as well as paperback. Well, what, what do you think about when you see something like J.K. Rowling writing about uh, a school for wizards? Well, I think it's fine. I mean, she's she's writing in the same tradition I was writing in. What she is doing doesn't bother me at all. I'm not particularly interested in her books because they're they're for it seems to me for fairly young kids. And I'm, you know, I'm a little old for <laughs> for reading 12-year-old fiction, but the only thing that distresses me about the the Harry Potter phenomenon is the the appalling ignorance of the people talking about it of the fact that Rowling is writing within several traditions. She's writing within a, the old fantasy tradition where you have wizards and stuff. She obviously, I, I think it's fairly obvious that she read A Wizard of Earthsea because she has this idea of a school for wizards. But that took her a very different direction for me. It took her into the English school story, which is another old tradition mm -hmm. of Kitty Lit. Stories about adventures at school. I mean, Kipling did it and, and, and Stalking and Company and so on. So she's writing within all these traditions which the reviewers seem to know nothing about. And that really, I think, is shameful. I really do. <laughs> Children's and young adult fantasy, that's what you do in a sense. You take these tropes and these figures and, and the dragon and the wizard or whatever, you know, and you play with it. That's what a lot of literature is, is, is taking something familiar and writing a new book about it. It's very seldom that somebody really invents something. I would say that the South American magic realists, in a sense, they really invented something. They're doing something nobody had ever done before. They're doing political fantasy of a kind that that I think really, really was something new in the world. So when you're looking at a book, say, like Cien uh, Años de Soledad, then you're talking about real Talk originality. About real originality, yeah. How to, how to write the history of a country as a novel, as a fantastic novel, that is, in a sense, the truest history of that country ever written. Yeah, I mean, this this is really, that's really something. Let me ask you a question. 
in the we now we're in the 21st century or depending upon what year it begins right <laughs> yeah we'll, be, you, we'll you know, be there in a few weeks we'll be there in a few weeks a <laughs> yes. few weeks a few months anyway uh looking back over the 20th century when you look at it as as a writer what books do you think say at the start of the 22nd century are going to be remembered a hundred years from now. Yeah. Let, me, let me get this straight. Yeah, a hundred years from now. From the well, century that I mostly lived. Yeah, because now we're talking world lit. Yeah. Well, I don't. I think the South Americans will last. I think Borges and and, and uh, Garcia Marquez and those fellows are going to last. The poets are going to last. Of course, we're not talking poetry, but you know, poetry always lasts. Yeats is, is Yeats is not going to go away any more than Keats has gone away. And then beyond that, Tolkien's not going to go away. Even if the New Yorker has forgotten he exists, you know, uh, Tolkien's going to remain. This, this is this is a a size of literature that 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 doesn't get disappeared. I don't think. Do you think people will be reading Philip K. Dick in fifty years? I think very likely. Yeah, because there's a lot to Philip Dick, can, and I imagine he can be reinterpreted. You know, to stay alive, a book has to have enough complexity that. Another generation can read it differently th than the last generation did, you know. And I suspect that Phil would be a good candidate for having written. Particularly, I, I taught The Man in the High Castle last spring at, at uh, San Jose State, and that is a very interesting book. And I had all these smart kids working on it, and they were just getting layers and layers that I'd never even seen in it, you know. And that that's the kind of book that lasts. Back in the 50s when he started writing, he, he just churned that stuff out. And then in 64, yeah, yeah, in 64, he churned out like seven or eight all at once, including, or 62, 63, 64, including Man in, oh, yeah. Man in the High Castle, uh, Wait for Last Year, Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldritch, which I absolutely love. And then what appalled me was when they started republishing his short stories, how many stories he wrote. Although I don't think they're as good as the fiction on the whole. He needed novel length to, to get as complicated as he could. Wow. Well, his short story, Faith of Our Fathers. Oh, he, so he wrote some oh, interesting stuff. Do you, do you think he's more likely to be remembered than, say, a Heinlein or an Asim? I'm not in a prediction business. What a thing for a science fiction writer to say. <laughs> I say it frequently. And people say, oh, you're not? I thought you wrote about the future. And I say I lie. Science fiction isn't about the future. It's about the present. Future's a nice metaphor. In the years following the interview, another version of The Lathe of Heaven was produced, and there was a live-action Earthsea television miniseries and a Studio Ghibli animated film of Tales of Earthsea, none of which were in Ursula K. Le Guin's liking. I can be reached at bookwaves.com, and you can listen to other interviews either as Radio Olinsky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. <laughs>